0: Good afternoon, everyone. Can you hear me all right? Yes. Good. Um, Well done, first of all, uh, for finding the Tudor Room. I didn't know where it was until 10 minutes ago. I think this is where the 5 to 11s have all their sessions, uh, but they've cleared it out very kindly uh, so that we can all be here for this seminar. Hopefully you're in the right place. Uh, How HTC can be a church in which same-sex attracted people can flourish. And I'm so grateful to Vaughan. Uh, for everything he's shared already this morning but for him doing this seminar as well uh, just so you know what's going to happen is Vaughan's going to speak um, at some moment we will just uh, break for a moment or two and Jamie will come up and just explain some uh, resources that we have as a church that we, if, you, if it's helpful for you uh, to look at but also uh, he'll show you a web page it's got various different resources but also on there has got a Q&A button and if you, you'll you be able to click on the Q&A button and write any um, any questions that you would like uh, to ask Vaughan uh, on that uh, button. Uh, Jamie will explain in a few moments. And then at the end of our time, we'll have a bit of time uh, for Q&A, okay? So let me pray, and I'm gonna answer it over to you. Uh, Lord God, thank you uh, that you are the one who loves us, who cares for us, and thank you that uh, we can gather now And just as you have been this morning, that you are present with us by your spirit. And so, Lord God, we ask that you would um, just use this next hour to be such a help and a blessing and an encouragement uh, to each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you like to give uh, Vaughan a round of applause?
1: Thank you, Jago, very much. Thank you for coming. Um, I don't know why you're here. Um, It could be because this is a huge issue in our culture. Obviously, issues of sexuality are massive culturally. It could be because it's a big issue in the Church of England. You'll be aware uh, I'm on General Synod, as is Jago, and there are big discussions going on in, in General Synod. So it's a big issue for our culture. It's a big issue for the Church. It could be that you're here for very personal reasons. Maybe because uh, you're thinking of a close family member or a friend, or because this is very personal for you. When the reality is issues of sexuality are very personal for all of us in different ways. Um, how can HCC be a church in which same-sex attracted people can flourish? Um, what do we mean by same-sex attracted? Um... I think when I I was growing up, people didn't use that kind of language. People were beginning to use language of gay, straight, and it was quite binary. So people described themselves as straight or as gay. Actually, not many did. It was largely hidden. Now, increasingly, with the younger generation, there's a kind of acceptance of being on a spectrum. So if you're under the age of 25, for the first time, I think it was last year for the first time, slightly over 50%, when asked where to put themselves uh, on a sort of sexuality scale, from one side being exclusively opposite-sex attracted, the other side being ex- exclusively same-sex attracted, for the first time, over 50%, put themselves somewhere within that spectrum. So same-sex attracted, that that means that... Um, Over 50% are saying, well, I recognise some degree of same-sex. Does that make you same-sex attracted? Or or are you only same-sex attracted in this language if you're exclusively same-sex attracted? I think there's an increasing recognition of complexity in sexuality. One friend of mine who is exclusively same-sex attracted said, "I, I don't call myself a homosexual, I call myself a Martin sexual because recognition that there are different types of homosexuality, his sexuality is unique to him. Just a little bit about personal context. I grew up conscious of some complexity in terms of sexuality. I didn't think that was particularly unusual, so I wasn't freaked out by it, but I was conscious of attraction, actually certainly at puberty to women and to men. And I just assumed that the attraction to other boys would just disappear. I thought that would go, and the attraction to girls would grow, and for whatever reason, the opposite happened. And so I, for a long time now, been exclusively same sex attracted. That's not how I define myself, but it's an element of the description of my reality. And uh, there'll be some of you who would think, yeah, that's me, exclusively same sex attracted, maybe. Forever, some friends of mine only ever same-sex attracted. Others, interestingly, um, I I think in my experience, it's been mainly women that I've met like this, but I'm sure it could happen to men. But there have been women who've who've only thought themselves attracted to the the opposite sex and then sometimes in later life, in the context of a deep friendship, find a, a sexual attraction emerging. So there's complexity here. That's a bit of background. How can HTC be a church in which same-sex attracted people can flourish? Again, it depends who you're talking about. we talk about Christians and non-Christians. We're talking about those who are exclusively same-sex attracted. I'm just going to talk in general terms. I want to talk fairly briefly. Each of these um, points that I'm going to make, I could speak for a long time on, and I'm going to try and resist that temptation. So I want to just touch on lots of things, and I want to give plenty of time For questions. So, along the way, if you've got questions, do put them in, and um, I'll be around at the end if you want to carry on chatting. How can HCC be a church in which same sex attracted people can flourish? Well, let's have the beginning. First, it can be unconditionally welcoming. And I hope you'll recognize that most of what I'm saying here should apply to um, any kind of person. So, basically, how we can be welcoming. And, to, and a good church in which people flourish it's not unique to same-sex attracted people basically all these apply to every kind of person unconditionally welcoming Luke 15 now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered this man welcomes sinners and eat with them uh, there's a kind of top 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 and there's a danger that churches could be a place that certain types of people feel they're not welcome and sadly perhaps especially those who self-identify as gay and embrace a gay lifestyle whatever that means because there's a variety of gay lifestyles can not least because of stories in the media get the impression that church is not a safe place for them church is not a welcoming place for them and i know you will want to be a church that is like jesus So Jesus, far from waiting people to come to him, he went to them and he mingled with tax collectors and sinners, the outcasts of the day. Now, that might have been how gay people were thought about 20, 30, 40 years ago and certainly beyond, now largely embraced by society. And so there's no sense of being outcast as far as society is concerned, but may still feel that the church would not welcome them and we need to be unconditionally welcoming. I was so thrilled not long ago that I was in the back of church and I noticed someone who was quite clearly transgender woman and um, I was nowhere near and I was engaged in a conversation and so I couldn't be there to welcome them as they came in and so I was just Looking out of the corner of my eye, trying to look as if I was listening to this person, but I wondered what was going to happen. And I was so thrilled that um, there was no no an eyelid, welcomed them entirely, greeted them, just treated them like they treated anyone else. And I, and there was no kind of implicit. That's what we need to be like for anyone, unconditionally welcome. Um, next gospel focused. Acts two. Verse 38, words on the the day of Pentecost. They've just asked, uh, what should we do? Because they realize they've killed the Christ. And um, Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Every one of you. People talk about being inclusive and there are some churches that uh, have joined the inclusive church movement and they define themselves as inclusive church i often wonder what what they think of the rest i I don't know many churches that say we are exclusive church (laughs) i mean inclusivity is a gospel value and it seems to me unfortunately hijacked by some because the gospel is profoundly inclusive it doesn't single out any one group of people so there's an inclusivity at the beginning of the bible god created all human beings male and female of uh, every ethnicity whatever their sexuality might be god has created everyone and every single person had been made in the image of god and is deeply loved by god inclusive all created by god that all sadly have turned away from god all have sinned paul says And fall short of the glory of god so there's no sense in which the bible ever singles out one group of people they're the terrible sinners whether they be gay or whatever they all have sinned and by the way of course all of us have sinned sexually so there's no sense in which the bible points a finger at a particular group as if they are the sexual sinners we've all sinned sexually even those who are asexual of sinned in relation to their sexuality because we, there's sin in all of us in every aspect of our personality inclusivity all created all sinned and that jesus welcomes all so his death is sufficient for all as he took the penalty for the sins of the world so all are welcome so again there's something profoundly wrong if we kind of give the impression You've got to brush up before you can be right with God. No, all are welcome to come as we are. And that links with the unconditionally welcoming. Come as you are. Where some who hijack, I think, the language of inclusivity go wrong is they fail to recognize the inclusivity of the gospel doesn't stop with all are welcome. It also says all must repent. So repent and be baptized every one of you, repent in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and you receive the gift of your Holy Spirit. And so coming to Jesus involves trusting in him and turning from sin. And that includes sin in the whole of life, including sexual life. And it doesn't matter what your sexuality is. There's sexual sin that needs to be turned away from. So the gospel certainly says, come as you are, but don't stay as you are. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, fascinating, where Paul is talking about a whole list of um, sinful lifestyles. And uh, within that list, you've got reference to homosexual sin. But by the way, nowhere does the Bible highlight that as if this is the sin. It's it's in the context of a whole list of sins, which includes heterosexual sins and the sin of greed, uh, etc., And then at the end of that, he says, and that is what some of you were. And included, some of you were heterosexual sinners, some were homosexual sinners, some were were greedy, some were idolaters, etc. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So glorious inclusivity, come as you are, but none of us are to stay as we are unconditionally welcomed, gospel-focused, biblically faithful. And I could spend a lot of time speaking about God's design for sex and marriage. There's a lot about marriage in the Bible. One of you noticed that the, um, the second chapter of the Bible is about marriage, the institution of human marriage, The penultimate chapter of the Bible, Revelation 21, speaks of divine marriage, the marriage of Christ and his church. You could summarize what the Bible teaches on sex and marriage in some very simple statements. God is for sex. Sex is for marriage. Marriage is for life. Life is for Christ. God is for sex. So have you noticed that the first command in the Bible is have sex. Did you know that? It's a fairly loose translation, if I'm honest. <laughs> um, but it, it, the first command is, uh, be fruitful and multiply, which is really very hard to do without having sex, unless you're an amoeba. <laughs> so, the Bible bu- is, is for sex. And God made us sexual beings, male and female, he created them. And God is for sex. and There's no sense that well, we should be embarrassed about our bodies and And about sex and sexuality, God designed us as sexual beings. And sex is for marriage. So, having created us with our complementary sexuality, male and female, He created them, God instituted marriage as the proper context for sexual union, as the means of a man and a woman coming together as one flesh. And sex is both profoundly relational, we were talking about that this morning, and also the context for reproduction. And so in the context of a one flesh union of a man and a woman for life, children are to be born and nurtured in God's good design. And the fact that it's man and woman is not incidental, and we'll come on to that in a little while. God is for sex, sex is for marriage, marriage is for life, the Lord Jesus in Matthew 19 references that those words, Genesis 2.24, which is the Bible's definition of marriage. A man will leave his father and mother, be united with his wife, the two will become one flesh. And the Lord Jesus said, what God has joined together, let, let no one divide. So in God's design, marriage is for life. And life is for Christ. And this brings us on to later New Testament teaching. In Ephesians 5, Paul also quotes Genesis 2, 24, the Bible's definition of marriage. And he says, this is a profound mystery. And I'm talking about Christ and the church. Very interesting, that. So we might think, well, marriage is the marriage of a man and a woman. That's marriage. And let's riff off that fundamental marriage of man and woman and say, well, actually, our relationship with Jesus is a bit like that paul says it's the other way around the fundamental marriage is the marriage of christ and his church a union of god and his people that's marriage that's the fundamental marriage and human marriage is a reflection of that and divine marriage is a union in difference like with unlike christ and his church two different but complementary entities reflected in the marriage of a man and a woman like an unlike and so when you see a man and a woman joined together in the sexual union of marriage the one flesh union of marriage that's a beautiful picture of the ultimate union for which we were all created and that links into what i was talking about earlier why is it that human relationships will never ultimately satisfy well think of it like this most of us have sexual urges except the small number who are asexual and we might think those sexual urges are deep down an urge for sex and if that was the case you kind of think well as soon as i have sex then i'll be satisfied and of course that's the lie that's being told all the time i need sex because that'll satisfy but then you find actually you have sex it doesn't satisfy Because behind the urge for sex is actually something much more profound. It's a desire for deep intimacy, the one flesh union, which marriage, which is marriage. And so no sex doesn't satisfy. What you're longing for is a deep intimate connection with another person. But even that doesn't ultimately satisfy because ultimately those sexual longings reflect the longing of our souls for union with God, and it's as if our, uh, our bodies are marked with this sense of incompleteness which is designed to point us ultimately to God. So, so this is the Bible's teaching about marriage. It's very profound. It goes there at the beginning of the Bible. It goes all the way through to the end of the Bible. And it's very, very positive. And this is God's good design, the context in which children are born the foundation of family life, which then is the the foundation of social life that guarantees, God willing, intergenerational unity within families. And the breakdown of family life as we've moved away from biblical teaching on sexuality has been disastrous. So we needn't be embarrassed about God's teaching on sex and marriage as if somehow the world suddenly discovered a better way. Because what the world's offering as a means of individual fulfillment has collapsed society. It's destroyed family, and ironically, it hasn't even brought individual fulfillment. All the Bible's negatives flow from that positive. So the, the, the tragedy that people think, oh, the Bible's against sex and against... Uh, no, the Bible's for marriage and the beauty of sex within marriage as a means of gluing and binding a couple together and of reproduction. And all the Bible's negatives flow out of that positive and they're not zooming in on one particular thing, homosexual sex, no, any kind of sex outside the context of a man and a woman. That is challenging for everyone. So um, there's no one who finds this easy. It'll hit different people at different, different stages. For those who are not married, whatever their sexuality, challenging because the world is saying you haven't lived until you've had sex. You can't be fulfilled until you've had your sex. You're weird if you don't have sex. And this is very challenging for us to live according to the Bible's teaching. It's challenging for those who get married because it's saying no, only in this relationship from now on, one man, one woman. It's very challenging. It can be very, very challenging at times. So those of you who are single, don't think. But if only I got married, then all my sexual longings will be satisfied. If anything, sometimes it can be harder. The wife gets pregnant, has, has kids, and uh, she's changed, her body's changed, her hormones have changed. It's, it, it, it's not straightforward all the time. It's challenging. And for those who are only attracted to the, to the same sex, of course, there's a particular challenge. But it's not a unique kind of challenge. we're not helping one another if we change god's word because actually that will undermine the beauty of god's design and all of us have in a fallen world desires that are not fitting in with that design it's challenging for all but we need to be biblically faithful we can say more about that i'm conscious by the way i say all these things and I can even think of the questions you might be asking, or maybe some of the objections. I hope to hear from you as we go on. And uh, Jago is leaving speak because he wants to say something. He wants to say all that you've heard is is
0: absolutely right. I do want to say I do want to say that. Um, I just want to get Jamie up so that uh, Jamie, Jamie's just going to so that people can ask your questions. You've probably already got some questions you want to ask Vaughan. Jamie's going to just tell you how to do that uh, and resources, and then hand back to Vaughan to keep going. Brilliant. Um,
2: Thank you, Jago. So, if you uh, get out your phone, if you have a phone with you, and uh, if you go into your browser and type in weekendaway.org, weekendaway.org, and then slash LGBT. So, weekendaway.org slash LGBT. And if you go to that page, you'll see there. um, You'll see there. There's two buttons. One says Q and A, and one says handout. If you click on uh, Q&A, it takes you, surprisingly, to Q&A. And if you click on that, and then you'll see there's a box there, questions for Vaughan, and then you'll be able to automatically, uh, sorry, uh, anonymously uh, type in a question and hit submit, and that question will come through uh, to us. But on that page too, you'll see there's the, the button handout, and that's a, a copy of the slides from Vaughan as well. Thanks, Jamie, very much. Um, next, open
1: about struggles. Again, I think this will help us, whatever we go through in life. But certainly, those who are same-sex attracted, you'll know two Corinthians twelve, verse nine. Well, I mean one Corinthians twelve was less useful, I think. Two Corinthians twelve, verse nine. Um, his His Paul struggling with his thorn in the flesh. I think quite providentially, we don't know what that was. And we've all got thorns in the flesh, and. Uh, Paul pleaded with the Lord to take it away. Mm-hmm. And the reply came, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And tragically, some cultures, including, especially tragically, church cultures, can exalt power and sordidness and there's a kind of feeling, oh, I mustn't reveal any kind of struggle or any kind of weakness. And that makes it very hard. I was going to say for anyone who's got struggles in life, that's all of us, isn't it? Am I the only one? I'm, I'm prepared to acknowledge I've got struggles. <laughs> and that's true of all of us. But it, there's a weirdness. If I have to, whatever happens, you mustn't know that I've got any struggles. And that means I I'm, I can't receive your help and encouragement. And of course, unless I reveal that I've got some struggles going on in my life, you're never going to open up with me because you'll be thinking, oh, well, he wouldn't understand. He'd never faced any kind of struggles. Church is, is not like a kind of waiting room for an awards ceremony. You know, oh, why are you here? Which prize do you get? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm here because I'm you know, particularly good at poetry. What about you? I'm, I, I've got the prize for X, Y, or Z. Now, all of us enter the kingdom of heaven by acknowledging our inability, our desperate need. So it's more like a doctor's surgery. I mean, the assumption in the doctor's surgery is there's something wrong with this person. I hope you do, don't do what one church member of, of um, mine did. So, oh, what are you here for, loudly, in the uh, in the doctor's surgery? Thankfully, it wasn't anything embarrassing. I said, I'm, I'm here for a heart checkup. And she said, oh, you should be all right. You're not morbidly obese. Um, but Anyway, it, it's, it's not necessarily a thing to do to us, but there's just an assumption here that, that we're here because we're needy. You couldn't be a Christian without acknowledging need. And it's a really healthy environment when we can be open about struggles. And so f- for me, growing up, struggles with sexuality, that just wasn't spoken about in the culture widely so it might seem a bit bizarre but i was at university in the mid 80s i can't think of anyone i knew who was openly gay and that's unthinkable for for this generation so um, no one was was saying openly and there were people who were living no doubt a homosexual lifestyle but it was in a in a little sub world It wasn't to be spoken about. So in church, even less so. So there might occasionally be a reference to it, but um, it was normally because of things going out in, in the world and political struggles and so on. So even though this was something I was aware of, it was an issue in my life, it took me much, much too long to tell anyone. And that meant it was a lonely struggle. It needn't have been. It shouldn't have been a lonely struggle. So a long time ago, I started, I thought, I don't want that to be the case for anyone in churches I lead. So I would routinely say, and perhaps this is an issue for you, and if it is, please don't let it be a lonely struggle. Do, do talk to someone, I'd be delighted to talk to you. And almost every time I found someone would talk to me, they just needed permission. And that became much easier when finally, having shared with family and close friends, I thought I needed to be much more open and it's going back quite a while now. Um, but at the time, I, I there, there were I didn't know many other pastors who'd done that. Um, it's not about owning an identity. Whatever the struggle you might have does not define you, but it can be very helpful just to be more open. In, in our small groups, do we ever pray for anything that's actually quite personal? Um, that's a great thing to do and you'll be helping others to feel oh, like well, I could share more personally And if you don't feel safe in that environment, at least with friends and with pastoral teams Open about struggles Next, a church that is confident in its identity uh, I think so much of what's going on in our culture in relation to sexuality issues is related to the whole question of identity. In traditional cultures, identity is a bit like a play, um, and you've been allotted a role at birth. And so in most societies still, traditional societies in the world, they're they're not grappling with identity. It's just given to them. So by and large, in stable, traditional societies with not much geographic mobility, not much social mobility, who are you? Well, you, your, your parents, son or daughter, what you do with your life is probably what your mum did or what your dad did, and you just fit within that strat of society and do that job. And there's something quite healthy about that. It's also potentially quite limiting. It, it traps you. It's very hard to get out of it. In contemporary Western society, we've gone the other way. So if, if traditional society life is like a, a script and a play, that identity is, in more contemporary society, identity is rather like a blank screen. And, and you can just draw on it whatever you wish, with whichever colours you like Identity is, is yours to discover, to define. You, you, you are who you feel yourself to be. You are who you define yourself to be. There's something very liberating about that, but also pretty terrifying because there's no stable identity. It depends on me and my feelings. Discover the search for the hero inside of you. What if I don't feel very heroic? Um, I don't find that identity meaning. Sexuality becomes right at the heart of that because when I was at school, the big issue, I'm old enough to to have done O-levels, and the big issue when I was 15, the decision I had to make was what O-levels will I do? And now our young people are having to decide, what, what sex will I be? What gender will I be? What's my sexuality? At a time when your hormones are raging, can you remember how stable you felt at that stage? Not very stable at all. And so I define myself and often, because I'm not very confident about my identity, I, I, I police it very strongly because I, if, if I'm insecure about it, you dare not challenge me because I'm, you're challenging the very essence of me because the essence of me is how I feel myself to be, but it's insecure. And so suddenly it becomes an identity battle. And Christians are liberated from that because our identity is not something we've somehow got to create for ourselves or discover. It's given, it's a gift of God. And it couldn't be more secure every single one of us made in the image of god and in christ much loved children of god Jager quoted the verse earlier how great is the love god has lavished upon us that we should be called children of god and no one can take that away from me and because it's a gift i can't lose it in most of our identities are dependent on me achieving your approval and maybe you do approve of me, and you think, yes, Vaughan gave some good talks, a good, good seminar. Well, th- then I'm terrified the next time I talk, I've got to keep doing a good talk, because my identity depends on you liking it. Or um, if you don't like it, suddenly my identity collapses. But if I'm a much-loved child of God, by grace, there's nothing you can do to that. So you could think that you've never heard about a seminar in your life, it wouldn't change my identity. You could think this is the worst seminar you've ever heard. It was a terrible speaker. Wouldn't wouldn't change my identity. So my sexuality is part of my experience of life. And I've known plenty of people, and sexuality can change. I don't don't think we're promised to change, by the way, and, and nor do I think that necessarily godliness changes with a change in sexuality. If I was suddenly to pray a prayer and instead of being same-sex attracted, I suddenly became opposite-sex attracted. Would that make me godly in my sexuality or more godly in my sexuality? That's what I do with it. So things can change, but one thing that can't change is my fundamental identity. So my feelings, my sexual orientation, if you use that kind of language, doesn't define who I am. So identity is about a controlling identity we've all got a whole mix of different feelings but my fundamental identity is my core identity what will determine how i live and for me my sexuality is not part of my core identity it's part of my lived experience but my fundamental identity is is a much loved child of god and i'm going to live i'm going to seek to live my life pleasing him in my sexuality confident identity. That flows into all of life, not just sexuality. Next, positive about singleness. Oh, how important that is. Because all of us are born single. Half of us, at least, will die single. And we'll spend a lot of our adult life single. So it would be very weird if the Bible had nothing positive to say about the state that many of us will spend much of our lives in and sadly some churches give the impression of being essentially negative about singleness i don't think many are quite as crass as the church that a friend of mine was in uh, back in the 1950s in the deep south of the us where the um, the um, the young adults group was called pears and spares pears <laughs> <laughs> uh, and spares um but some churches can give the impression you're a pair or you're a spare. And some parents can, can talk in this kind of language. Parents, please don't do this. Oh, How are the kids going? Oh, well, they're, they're fine. We've got two. That, that, um, well, two of them are married, so they're all right, and we're still praying for the other one. <laughs> and, and the impression you're giving is the most important thing is that they get married, whatever happens, as if somehow to be single is, is, is a terrible fate. Marriage is a gift of God. So is singleness a gift of God 1 Corinthians 7 is a fascinating language And Paul who was single Says 1 Corinthians 7 verse 7 I wish that all of you were as I am But each of you has your own gift from God One has this gift, another has that Now what does he mean there? When we talk about the, the gift of marriage I've never heard people say oh, it's, it's, Marriage is such a gift But they, they're not describing I'm very gifted at being married. Uh, I've, got, I've got the gift of marriage because I'm a giftedly married person. I'm really good at loving my wife. And um, no, the gift of marriage is being married. But when we talk about the gift of singleness, we talk about the ability to be really happily, contentedly single. And most single people don't think that describes them because singleness has its challenges. So it seems really unfair. All married people have the gift of marriage, but only some people have the gift of singleness. And those who are single but don't think they've got the gift of singleness, well, they feel that they're, they're missing out big time. But actually, marriage and singleness are both gifts. And Paul is beginning, in 1 Corinthians 7, to speak to those who are married who kind of feel that it's more spiritual not to have sex because they had a warped understanding of um, the body. And so they kind of thought, I wish I, wish I was single. And some were trying to be functionally single by not having sex in marriage. And Paul says, no, 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 you've got the gift of marriage. So enjoy the gift of marriage and keep having sex in marriage. By the way, did you know that uh, this supposedly repressed bachelor Paul encourages sex in marriage? And don't deprive each other except for a season, maybe to pray. It's good to So then, if you've got the gift of marriage, live a married life and thank God for the gift of marriage. And by the way, it has some downsides too. Paul says i wish you had the gift that i've got being single because marriage will bring many troubles in this life and single people people don't think that suddenly you get married and all will be well trouble is all of us know the struggles of being single because we've all experienced in singleness you don't know the struggles of being married and understandably married people don't get up on church every sunday so let me tell you what a tough time it's been in our marriage this week <laughs> So the danger is you get the impression that as soon as I get married, all my problems will go away. It's not like that. Marriage has great benefits and some challenges. Singleness has great benefits and some challenges. And they're great opportunities. Many of my married friends wish that I had the freedom, that they had the freedom that I'd got. And their are opportunities not least in serving the Lord, but in other things too. So the Bible's positive about singleness. Let's not think that my life is on hold until I get married find to want to be married, find to pray for marriage, but not as if your life depends on it. Let's be positive about singleness. And then finally, before I give you a chance for questions, live as a family. Um, Mark 10, 29 and uh, 30. Truly, I tell you, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Is there a cost to living for Jesus? Yes, there is. And for those of us who've got exclusive same-sex attraction that can be hard there's a saying no and maybe i think it's it's harder in this cultural moment where, whereas in previous uh, societal moments in our country society was saying no and the church was saying no now, now society is saying yes go for it and jesus is saying no, this is not a lifestyle to be embraced and there's a, there's a challenge in that just by the way as there are challenges for all of us whatever our sexuality. But Jesus is saying here, if anyone who's given up anything for the kingdom of heaven, they, they will receive amazing blessings in this life, and in the age to come eternal life. So it's not just good and buried, it's going to be miserable in this life, but it will all be made up for in the new creation. That's gloriously true, but there are great blessings in this life. And in particular, those who forsake family in any sense will receive in this life brothers sisters mothers children I think of one woman I've no idea if she's same-sex attracted I think it's quite possible and uh, she was much loved in the church and um, after she died in the funeral someone said um, she never married but she was a great mother and she was a mother to so many of the younger women in the church um, I thank God for close friends to be single for whatever reason is not to embrace a life without intimacy so um, we're not meant to live alone doesn't mean to say you have one special person exclusive relationship but if you for whatever reason short-term or long-term don't have a sexual relationship doesn't mean it's safe to be lonely there's a loneliness in marriage at times by the way and we'll always face a certain amount of loneliness in this life but we should embrace loving intimacy healthy intimacy within the family of god turning point in my life was um, when a colleague of mine a close friend um they'd invite me around one monday evening i was having a meal and the wife said um why don't you come around every monday and i said well, that'd be very nice uh, but i wouldn't no, no, no. if we're booked up we'll tell you but and if you've booked up but, but just every monday typical bloke the next day my friend said i'm so sorry about that pressure you're on of course you don't want to come around every monday but i really did so one of the challenges i i I don't lack friends i mean i've got loads of friends what what i lack is family so i don't live with a family and so so that that's a longing i've got and i think many single people over time that that's the challenge um you get friends but who's in the inner circle so that you can do life with a few people and have that kind of committed continuity relationship that's what i have been longing for and uh, this family by by saying that every week every monday there i am um every easter day i'm there for a meal every christmas eve i'm there for a meal so they've kind of lovingly accepted me within the family and you can't do that with everyone those of you married can't do that with everyone in church but we need to find those kind of relationships that draw people in. The, a great moment for me was when I realized after a few weeks, the kids were behaving just as badly as if I wasn't there. and That was a sign to me, I'm part of the family. And I think genuinely, um, it's been beautifully mutual. I don't want to be the receiver all the time. Um, and I think it's been too way. I've said too much because um, I want to give plenty of time for questions. So um, over to someone.
0: It's like (laughs) Jago. Bourne, thank you so, so much um, for all that you've shared there. Now, we've had loads of questions coming in. I mean loads. Um, So uh, I'm trying, and Jamie's also trying to summarize some of them as well, so we'll put some together. So I'm just going to go and just ask you them as we come along, and then just answer as long or as little as each of you want. Um, Apologies, I'm not going to get through all the questions. I think there's 38 or 40 questions already. We're not going to do all those, okay? So um, how do you explain or rationalise the existence of same-sex attraction generally and in your own life uh, when we're told that male-female relationships are God's design? The
1: fall. So um, all of us have a fallen sexuality. And uh, so those who've only ever experienced attraction to the opposite sex don't have a pure sexuality because I'd be very surprised that they only ever you know, imagine having sex with their potential husband or wife and uh, once they're married only ever think about sex. We've, we've, we've all got a fallen sexuality and that comes out. So every part of us, because of sin, every part of us is, is, is not as it should be. And so just because we have very strong, deeply ingrained feelings doesn't mean to say that they're to be
0: lived out and acted on.
1: Um, but that's that's the fall, in my understanding.
0: Um, some people say we no longer follow other biblical rules, e.g., not eating seafood. Uh, so why should we still follow the Bible's position on sex and marriage? Are we just picking and choosing? Someone else uh, said in, in the Old Testament, there's examples of people having multiple wives, etc. Well,
1: let me take those two differently. The, the um, let's say prawns. That it's that that kind of seafood. Um, that, that is there in the Levitical commands, and in the same book of Leviticus, don't uh, lie, a man should lie with a man as he does with his wife. And so they said, Well, here we've got two commands side by side, and why choose one and, 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 and not the other? Well, what you've got to do is interpret the Bible on the Bible's own terms. And so you can't just take it in isolation, you've got to look in the context of the whole so there are a whole series of laws that were given to the to the old testament people of god and it's clear that some of them would have marked them out as the racial group people of god at that time the food laws for instance made them distinct from gentiles that's, that's one example and so how do we understand that law today jesus said Don't abolish any law. I haven't come to abolish any of the laws. I've come to fulfil them. So what does the coming of Christ mean to how we understand those laws? The New Testament tells us that. So the coming of Christ, the fulfilment of them, when it comes to the food laws, those laws that were designed to to mark out God's racial people of God as distinct, they've been removed. Jesus explicitly said um, he declared all foods clean because now in christ the people of god is, is multi-ethnic all those are in christ and we're marked out not by the food we don't we do or don't eat so they've not just been abolished they've been fulfilled because they've been fulfilled they're no longer to be obeyed by the letter but when it comes to the moral law it's reaffirmed so god's teaching about sex is not to mark out the Jews as distinct from the Gentiles. It's founded in creation before the people of God, um, the, the Jews became the people of God. It's marked out in creation and it's reaffirmed in God's new covenant church, Jew and Gentile. And so that's why that continues. As for um, in the, the Old Testament, there, there were those who had more than one wife. You will find that in the narrative sections, and the, the narratives describe what happened. They don't moralise from that; they just describe what happened. If you read the narratives, it doesn't go well. It's, it's messed up. And when you look at the ethical teaching of Scripture, well, you go back to Genesis 2:24, one man, one woman, reaffirmed by Jesus in the New Testament and the, uh, the the New Testament writings. Uh, everyone should have just one spouse.
0: Uh, the view that marriage is exclusively between a biological female and a biological male, who is this the view of? Vaughan, Jago, HDC clergy, the official view of HDC, or one might add the official view of Church of England?
1: Well it is, as a matter of fact, it is the currently the, the official view of the Church of England. Um, but the, the big question is, what does God say? And, and you, you've got to think about that for yourself. Um, the, the, the teaching of the church down the ages and throughout the world has been that uh, the place for sex is in the marriage of a man and a woman for life. So this is not me suddenly thinking, oh, I'm, I look at the Bible and that's what I've come up with. This has been the, the understanding of the universal church down the ages of what the bible is saying and that's the big question That that's the challenge so my task joker's ta- task task of uh, any leadership is is not to think what do i like or what do i want but what what does the bible say and we are to read the bible not as if we're the first ever to have read it before so it's, if we're reading the bible in such a way that it seems to be saying something that no one ever no no one in the age ed- down the ages has ever seen it before that should be an alarm bell and uh, so the, 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 the teaching of the Church of England is that we, we take the teaching of the Bible, but we also take tradition very seriously, how Christians have understood it. And this is, this is the view of the church, um, because it's always been understood to be the view of the Bible. And it's only in the last 20, 30 years that people have, um, in any number, suggested something else. And the question is, why is that? I don't think there's a parallel, I really don't. Um, You might think about um, women in ministry, you might think about slaves. I I really don't think they are parallels um, for various reasons, which I'm having to go on to. But um, have you gone to? I'll go (laughs) on to now. (laughs) (laughs) So for instance, um, slavery, the, 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 the teaching of the New Testament undermines slavery right from the beginning paul encourages encourages a a slave owner to release his slave and uh, so down down the ages it's not as if from the very beginning the church has happily embraced slavery and although very very sadly there were professing christians who not only supported slavery but but actively engaged in slavery there were also others who profoundly disagree with this And thank God, it was um, predominantly Christians who advocated for the end of slavery. And so it's it's not as if you've got one united view down the age, and then suddenly, late on, suddenly some people say, well, maybe maybe there's a problem with slavery. As far as women in ministry is concerned, you've got two strands of teaching in the Bible. You've got a very clear teaching about the equality of men and women, And you've got women very obviously engaged in all sorts of ministry in the early church. But you've also got Jesus with male apostles and and some teachings that suggest uh, maybe there's some roles just for men. So so there's been a debate. So Wesley in the 18th century did have women preaching. There have been women preaching in various church traditions down the ages. But the bulk of the church didn't have women priests. But you've always got a bit of a debate, and because you can see two strands within the Bible. But there's never been an understanding that there are two strands, that one strand seems to support homosexual sex and another doesn't. There's only one strand, and so it really is only in the last few decades that anyone has implied anything else. It's,
0: I think, unique. Thank you. Um, trying to do three or four more um, before we run out of time. The same-sex attracted question does feel different uh, than sort of those who are single who are, who are opposite sex attracted etc because it doesn't feel without hopeful resolution i.e. married couples can get sex counselling single people can find spouses how do we navigate navigate hopefully a future of aloneness that is of a categoric and permanent difference to the theology of marriage, family etc
1: well the hope is in Christ so um, if I think the meaning of life is to find a sexual partner and um, I'm exclusively same-sex attracted and I can't imagine that partner being of the opposite sex then life could feel hopeless but I hope you've, you've heard what I've been trying to argue that, that life is not first and foremost about finding sexual fulfillment with another person in this life and so my hope is in Christ And that's not a hopeless life. But I also want to underline that um, there is a real and deep intimacy to be gained outside of a sexual relationship. And I thank God for friendship. And one of the great blessings of my life as someone who's single is that I I think I've got deeper friends than I, well, I've no doubt I've got deeper friends than I could ever have otherwise. I I hit um, 40 when friendship became a big issue for me, because I'd always had lots of friends, but they kept on getting married. And then, so that became more and more complicated, because but it wasn't that they ceased to be friends, but they just ceased to have as much time. And, and then kids came along, they had even less time, and so I kept on just having slightly younger friends, and it got to the stage where oh, I can't keep, you know, this is getting, it's difficult. So I thought, I've got to re, get the bellows out and reignite some of my older friendships. So I consciously was vulnerable. And said, Look, um, and that was the time when I began to speak to some of them about sexuality, some had known before, but I need you. And I thought it was because I was single that I really need friendships. Almost every time they said, Oh, I need friendships too. I mean, my married friends were starving for uh, friendship. Um, I think male friends, especially, w- women, I think, are by and large, if I can overgeneralize better recognising the need for, for deep friendships. And, and men forget that they need them just as much. So um, there's an intimacy to be gained. So it's not a hopeless life. It's a struggle
0: at times, sometimes a very deep struggle. But it's not a hopeless struggle. Um, if a same-sex couple is living together and not sexually active, um, should we bless that? Should we encourage that? Are we saying they should stay, stay single, lonely, or just that they should stay celibate?
1: that's that's a wisdom call uh, and there's certainly nothing in and of itself ungodly about that um i don't live alone as it happens um i have lodgers, and uh, they come and go and come and go and go but but i love that i love the fact that there are other people in the house and that, that, so there are different ways in which people can organize their lives in a godly and wise way and some end up with a with a deep special friendship i i I Certainly, don't think there's anything in and of itself sinful about that. What the, the church should formally bless—that's a different matter. And uh, because we don't sort of formally bless um, many things, we, we pray for and encourage, but sort of get up to the front of church uh, formally. I, I'm not convinced about the pastoral wisdom of that. But nor do I think that that in and of itself is a bad thing. There are wisdom issues and. Um, We've got to partially help each other on what is wise and, and what's the best. But I'm, I'm not sure that, as it were, blessing, because then that suddenly becomes an equivalent to marriage. And I, and I think friendship is of a different order. It can be beautiful and wonderful, but it's, it's not marriage, actually. So that would be a partial question about the wisdom of it, but, but not a principial objection.
0: Um, I'll do two more questions. I'll try and summarise for you. Um, There'll be a couple of questions along the lines of, and you might necessarily be put this for Seneb's context rather than right, saying for HDC. But how would you uh, sort of pastorally support someone uh, who says they don't agree with um, Seneb's teaching, HDC's teaching, on uh, this whole area? They sort of they they've thought it through. They've looked at the Bible. They've done things. They're thinking, uh, and they've come to a different conclusion in terms of how to, to view things. How would you uh, partially support? What would you say to someone like that?
1: For a start, brother sister, you're very welcome here. Um, we don't expect people to to um, necessarily agree with us on everything, but um, to understand that this is this is not something we're I'm persuaded on. So um, not to be surprised that we're going to be teaching in a particular way. I should say I hardly ever talk about. I, mean, I talk about this now, but I hardly so hardly ever talk about sexuality issues and it's not a a one issue obsession at all but whenever we're talking and encouraging people how to live their lives then what I've been saying today that is the direction of travel we're going to be encouraging and so don't be surprised that's what you're going to hear and what we and and that's what we want to encourage you to do now ultimately we can't make anyone do anything if anyone begins to live in a lifestyle that, that doesn't fit with that then that's not someone we're going to put in a position of, of leadership because we want everyone to be encouraged and it's hard for all to be faithful in the marriage of man and woman or to be absent outside and so if someone enters a sexual relationship outside marriage that that's not someone we're going to put in a position of leadership um, but they're very welcome um
0: Thank you. And last, last question. I'm trying to summarise a few questions, but I think the the, the, the sort of question you talked about being inclusive. Um, Then there's there's Pride Week, Pride Month. How do you um, support those, the bits that are about inclusive, without saying I'm, I'm sort of for everything that Pride stands for? Uh, and then, sort of more personally, I guess the same kind of thing. If you, you know, one, one person's written, my best friend is, who I presume is female, is getting married to another woman. Um, I want to know, that I, that I, to know her to know I will always love her, be by her side, uh, but also want to be faithful to God's design. How do, I, how do I relate to her and what do I do?
1: So difficult, isn't it? I, I find Pride Week personally very hard indeed um it was an Oxford street and saw the, the banners and they said they just i found them quite chilling because um it's a kind of here's a bandwagon you've got to you've got to go on along with all of this and some of it i'm passionate about so i i am very worried about um those who are experiencing same-sex attraction in other parts of the world and where, where the shame is huge and, and, and where gay people can be criminalized, whether it's the threat of the death penalty and so on. And I worry about that very much. It grieves me um, because how are they gonna be able to share the struggles they might be having? So there are elements of the pride and certainly any suggestion that somehow, and you get this in some parts of the world, that uh, those who identify in any way as LGBT uh, are somehow to be shunned and terrible people or whatever and all in the image of God is a dignity God loves everyone. I mean, th- these things I'm passionate about, but there are other elements of it that I think are just wrong. And so it's very hard. Would I wear the rainbow laces when I play in a football team? I used to play football, and I'm glad I don't play anymore because I, I'd, want to, I'd want to wear half of them and not the other half. But here's a kind of its a movement you've got to embrace it all, otherwise you're cancelled. It's really hard. And um, I don't know how to navigate that well. I, I hope, what I've found is my gay friends so often say, look, I know you're different, but... Now, they know what I think, but they also know that I love them, I respect them. And the problem is, they assume that the rest of the church who, who have traditional views really hate them, and I'm the unusual one. I don't think I am the unusual one. That there's a love and acceptance and embracing of all, and recognition we're all, all, we've all got struggles, and we're all failing in all sorts of ways, and love and acceptance of all. And so actually just being, relating well to people, loving them, being the kind of people you are and the kind of community that HTC is, not obsessed about any one issue, I think that will help people know, rather than just get involved in public spats, which don't often do a lot of good. As for you know, what you do if a close friend invites you or a family member invites you to a same-sex marriage, That's a very personal thing, and I I would leave that to conscience. I know of parents, for instance, who've decided they couldn't do it, but who've found other ways in which to make it very clear that they are unconditional in their love, um, and that you're always welcome, and who've shown love and acceptance of the partner, but they didn't want to support and endorse the marriage so they felt they couldn't be at the marriage service but they f- went out of their way to stress i think of an- another couple more than one actually who've chosen to go because they know that their son or daughter knows what they think and knows that they're not in favor of same-sex marriage that's not in doubt so um not being there wouldn't have added to what they knew already mm-hmm. and what they felt was that the, the what they might be in doubt about is whether they're still loved despite this difference. And so they chose to go to the marriage, not to embrace the marriage, but just to make it very clear, love you, love you, love you. And I think that's a conscience issue. I understand and respect both decisions.
0: Lauren, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing so much, um, biblically, but personally, and giving so much of yourself. Really, really, thank you so much. So me give a round of applause. I am aware of the however many were 40 plus questions. We have not covered all of them. I tried to cover as much as we could, uh, but we haven't covered all of them. But as Vaughan uh, graciously said, he's going to be here for a bit. So if you, your question wasn't answered or you've got things that you want to talk through with him, please do uh, come and, and chat with him. Um, Jamie, do you just want to come up and explain the other resources just as we close? would be super helpful um, and any other ways that people can uh, follow on. Yeah,
2: sure and just where, yeah th- this is such a big topic for all of us and often raises more questions than we do have answers and just to say that we have a pastoral team to uh, here at HGC and we would love to-, to chat to you about anything at all. If you've got questions that haven't been answered we'd be happy to, to chat to you as well um, or-, or anything else at all. Also if you go to that website at uh, weekendaway.org/ LGBT if you scroll down uh, you'll be a- able to see a number of other resources that are helpful. We've got books, podcasts, articles. Uh, websites uh, that will be really, really
0: helpful. Uh, Jamie, why don't you uh, close to pray, and then Zoom's going to tell us what's happening next.
2: Father, thank you for the, the space that we've been able to have right now to uh, talk about big things. And God, would you help us to be a community of people uh, that know our value in you, that know we are fearfully um. and wonderfully made. Uh, made in your image. And Lord, would you help us to be uh, unconditionally loving and welcoming uh, to each and every person. And Lord, would you help us to to navigate these issues uh, faithfully to you. And God, would you be with us this afternoon as we uh, go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.